0: Welcome to Church Ahead, the weekly Christian podcast talking about big questions facing the future of church, with Rev L all the way from the north of England. Episode 61, Colonialism, like a little prayer. No, no, no Rev L, the summer pop festival is next week. Today we've got one more week of politics. All right then. But just let me do a little bit more before we start. I hear your voice. It's like an angel sighing. I have no choice. I hear your voice. Heaven help me. Okay, then. Next week we've got Madonna singing Like a Prayer in Detroit. And today we're looking at the subject of colonialism. High up. Above the entrance to Oriel College, Oxford, stands a little man. Clutching his hat in his right hand, left foot slightly forward, he stood there for decades. He's not a very domineering figure, and I have to say, I walked past him many times without even noticing him. That is, until the Roads Must Fall protests kicked off in 2015, when we learned that this colonial tyrant has been cheerleading the persecution of brown and black bodies all over the university, if not the whole world. Such was the reach of the British Empire, and such is the moral urgency of taking away the stain of his presence, lest he inspire another generation of racist colonialists. This campaign gathered a lot of momentum and it would take someone very brave to stand up for this little man. Let's say, to point out that his Rhodes Scholarship has been funding students from all over the world to come to Oxford, 20% of them black and half people of colour. Or perhaps to show how this little man, far from being a racist, showed consistent sympathy for the numerous black Africans he met throughout his life. I want you to meet today the bravest of all my Oxford Theological College tutors. Nigel Bigger was then, when I knew him, chaplain of Oriel. He's recently retired as Regius Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology at the University of Oxford. He still holds the role with an emeritus position. When he taught me ethics at Wycliffe, I saw him as a quietly spoken slightly hesitant character who knew his stuff and thought deeply, struggling to put complex issues into finely balanced sentences. But I'm not sure I'd have seen him as someone who's going to take on the weight of world opinion in the press and one of the most powerful modern movements in the university of today. So what has he done wrong to rile the university so badly? Well, his first offence was to defend that little man above the entrance to Oriole. Most Anglican chaplains would have no hesitation jumping on the bandwagon for his removal. Nigel's second offence was to set up a five-year project to, I quote, test the ethical critiques of empire against historical facts, end of quote. His first degree at Oxford was in history, and his critics really don't like him bringing historical facts and examples into something they see as a simple, open-and-shut case of good versus evil. They satirise his balance-sheet approach, which they see as undermining the clarity of our outrage against colonialism. More than 170 international scholars protested against the university having anything to do with this project. And his third offence is what we're concerned with here today. His book entitled Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning. It's mainly about the British Empire. Published finally in 2023, the book was first accepted by Bloomsbury, who backpedalled with a, quote, public feeling on this subject does not currently support publication of the book. End of quote. Yes, dear. And it never will, not in my lifetime. Keenan Malik, reviewing the book for The Guardian newspaper, accuses him of being unconvincingly cartoonish and accuses him of working back from what he wants to see in the present. The economic historian Niall Ferguson says the book cannot be ignored by anyone who wishes to hold a view on this subject. I think that's nearer the mark. So let's have a look at the book. Colonialism, a moral reckoning, has eight chapters working their way through the main moral charges frequently made against the British Empire, such as what was their motivation in their heyday, stealing wealth and racist loathing. He shows how human and mixed the different motives were of, for example, traders, emigrants, soldiers, church missionaries, civil servants and other players in the colonial project. But if you listen to what those people said in their own words at the time, there is nothing particularly systemically evil. Chapter 2. Wasn't colonialism really just a cover for slavery? He shows how slavery was a fairly small part of the colonial project. One of his main points is how much the British Empire invested in the abolition of slavery at huge cost. The British Empire did not invent slavery or even bring it to Africa. But we did a lot to bring this universal practice to an end. Now that does not turn the British into saints because they had slaves' blood on their hands and also because they made some depressingly unheroic deals to get the job done, such as paying compensation to the owners rather than the enslaved people. Chapter 3. Didn't we treat native people as our racial inferiors? His answer is sometimes, but not generally. Chapter 4. Weren't we just murderers and thieves? More fatalities came through us bringing European diseases that the native people had no immunity to, and land was usually negotiated by treaty. I love his example of Church of England missionaries arriving in New Zealand, campaigning for Maori rights, and how colonial administrators would often prioritise local welfare above the interests of British business. And on he goes, showing how the popular narrative of British empirical rape and racism is often overstated. When his critics satirise his balance sheet approach, what I think they mean is they wish he wouldn't bring so much history into it. They wish he wouldn't Quote from the diaries of traders in India. They wish he wouldn't find so many contemporary accounts of native people rather liking the British, or point out rather awkward things such as the Irish Easter Rising of 1916 being motivated to quell the rising contentment amongst Irish people for the benefits of British rule. All this detail, can't he just keep it simple? Empires are bad and the British Empire was the worst. OK, apart from perhaps Genghis Khan, the Egyptians, and OK, maybe the Nazis. But detail and facts don't help. I've said before in this politics series that I see a role for Christian thinkers in trying to bring a bit of calm to overheated slanging matches. And I feel Nigel does this like a whirring fan on a hot, humid day. In a subject where there is so much posturing, rhetoric, and ideological grandstands, he just goes through the issues, weighing up the evidence. Who did what? What was said at the time? How does this behaviour compare with other empires doing similar things? So it's a whitewash, is it? He just picks out the nice bits of empire and ignores all the things that we did wrong. No, not at all. For instance, he acknowledges that the 1840s opium wars were not justified and the Chinese were treated badly by the British. He's not afraid to tell us about some grubby piracy and a great deal of cock-up as well as conspiracy. He knows the colonial project was often high-minded, even if it often failed to live up to its own ideals. We learn about the conflicts between traders, sometimes riding roughshod over native welfare only to be put down by their own government in london wanting them to show more respect for the locals the sensitivity to the different periods of empire we learned from the mistake of trying to hold the american colony too close and so got ahead of stirrings for independence coming round the corner in canada and australia later on we set india on its path to self-government from the 1920s. When the African colonies wanted their independence in the mid-20th century, we did not stand in their way. We could see that the empire had to evolve into a voluntary alliance of free nations. It was after reading the book that I came across Keenan Malik's Guardian Review. And when Malik characterises the book as cartoonish, I can't help wondering whether he's actually even read it. Because what it feels like to me is a grown-up synthesis after a thesis and antithesis in Hegelian dialectic. British people of, let's say, my grandparents' generation used to think their empire made them the greatest people in the world. British people of my children's generation see us as the worst and most morally reprehensible people in the world. Now let's look at the facts soberly and honestly and come to a more sensible place in the way we view our past in this world. Just take the example of one country. In India, we provoked native uprisings through insensitive mismanagement, misjudgment, and we botched the partition at independence, setting the new nations up for a great deal of conflict. But most of the time, We managed to run the continent of India with about a thousand civil servants leaving the country with railways and a superb civil service. Naive overreach perhaps, but definitely not genocidal exploitation. My opinion is that Christianity has fed into colonialism in not one but two unfortunate ways. The first was when we were a confident Christian country. We thought our colonial efforts were bringing the light of Christ to nations lost in darkness. This confidence was naive and not very self-aware. But that was a long time ago. What about now? In today's world, the Christian belief in sin has morphed into a sense that we have erred and strayed as a nation and there is no health in us. British history is simply the story of our moral depravity. Now what marks out the Regis Professor, now Emeritus, of moral and pastoral theology at the University of Oxford is that he falls into neither of those traps. He travels on neither of those bandwagons. Perhaps it takes a profos- professor of not just moral theology but pastoral theology as well to see how important this is in freeing young people in this country from their sense of guilt for the actions of their ancestors. You've heard me teasing exotically decorated clergy about their clerical titles before, and yes, I admit I am quite taken with this particular professorial title that is usually held by someone who's ordained and a canon of Christchurch Cathedral. When I was at Theological College in Oxford, the man in this post then was Oliver O'Donovan. I went to several of his lectures, desperately trying to follow this great man's thoughts. But I have to confess, I often could not for the life of me work out what he was going on about. He sprayed around a lot of long words in complex sentences. Tom Wright, the Oxford theologian, whispered, once that The problem with Oliver is he's both evangelical and Irish, which gives him a lot to prove. I remember saving up to buy his expensive, enticingly titled book, Resurrection and Moral Order, and being bitterly disappointed with the chore of trying my best to read it. This book, Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning, is clear and simple. There's very little jargon or technical talk. I would say almost anyone could read it. So for me, Nigel Bigger brings calm where the air is overheated and clarity where the rhetoric is so often pretentious. One last story about this great man. I began this politics series of Church Ahead with the teasing voice of my mother waking me up with the dreadful news of Margaret Thatcher's election in 1979. My mother was intelligent but had not had the benefit of a great education. She failed her 11 plus, nobody prepared her and she certainly never went near a university. Whilst I was in Oxford, I was invited to a Saturday evening dinner party with Nigel and his wife in the home of another Oxford theologian. I was thrilled to be asked. I'm sure you know me well enough by now to work out how much I would enjoy hanging out with these slightly older theologians on the rise. Now I'm not sure whether my invitation was because of my theological brilliance or because the host had a bit of a shine on my girlfriend. But the difficult issue for me was my mother had come to stay with me in Oxford that weekend. What would I do with her? I was a bit nervous about taking her. Would she cope with all the theological talk? Would she fit in? Would the not-specially-Christian, working-class girl from Oldham embarrass me at the top table of Oxford theology? In the end, I didn't feel I could leave her on her own, so I took her along. And it was a wonderful evening, and the two big-beast theologians could not have been nicer to her. On just about every test I can think of, Nigel Bigger thoroughly deserved to be the Regius Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology at the University of Oxford. And this brilliant book is the best effort I've ever come across of a Christian thinker providing a better explanation of the history and behaviour of my country in this world. If the little manatorial finally does fall, I would like to propose he's replaced by a statue of Nigel Bigger. Thank you for listening to episode 61. Next week we've got our Summer Pop Festival in Detroit and please can you prepare for it by finding and listening to a video of Madonna singing the song like a prayer. See you next week in Detroit.